everybody, and welcome to the We Are Love podcast with Chris and Chris. I'm Chris Whitco. And I am Chris Correa. Thank you all so much for being here. <laughs> yes, indeed. And we are so excited. We are so blessed to have Jason Robel on with us today. How are you, Jason? I'm feeling great today, Chris. It's wonderful to reconnect with you after so many years. You know, it felt like uh, many, many years ago, about a decade plus, we would see each other at so many different events and gatherings and and meeting of the tribes people. And uh, and it's been a hot minute. So it's it's just delightful to reconnect with you under these auspices and also get to know you, Christopher, and uh, and have you hold the space for me to share and, and bring my heart to this conversation. Yeah. So it's awesome to reconnect like this. Uh, it really is. In fact, we were kind of talking earlier about your podcast and how that was an inspiration for Chris and I. It was an inspiration for me to start a podcast. And Chris, you know, we keep it telling me when we get into these conversations, we should, we should record this. This is really good stuff. So to have you come on and yeah, it's been a minute. It was a uh, you know, back in the, the raw food phenomenon. Do you remember that? The raw food days? <laughs> Dude, I mean, first of all, you know, time is such a fascinating thing. It, it I, I always feel like the concept of time feels like Laffy Taffy or Silly Putty to me because it's, <laughs> it's this expansion, contraction, this amorphous kind of relationship to time. So in some ways, you know, the, the things like the Raw Spirit Festival feel like they were yesterday. When, I mean, my goodness, I think the last one was maybe what, 2010, 2011, something like that. So literally a decade has gone by, but that's originally where we connected, Chris. And, and, you know, I had the great pleasure of um, being fueled by your superfoods for so many years and, mm. and your wonderful energy and, and how buoyant and bright and vibrant you were when we first met. Um, but man, though, I reminisce fondly on those days because a lot of the people from our community, our raw food community are now in, in different places all over the globe. And that was a very special time because it felt to me like there was such a electric spirit of discovery and experimentation, you know, like what is this durian stuff? What goji right. berries, golden berries, ashwagandha, what is all this? It was so exciting. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, I remember as a chef, you know, th this whole, alternate dimension of foods opening up things I had never heard of, you know, because to that point it was like, okay, you know, broccoli and tofu and, and, and brown rice. And then it was like, I think my gateway was probably cacao because I know it's so oh, cliche yeah. to say that, but you know, when I met David Wolf for the first time and he's like, dude, have you ever had cacao? And then the floodgates were just open at that point, you know, that was exactly my story in the sense that he came to Delaware. I lived in Delaware of all places. And David Wolf came to Delaware, gave a talk. I was kind of tricked into going, but well, that's a different story. And cacao and raw food. And it was like, what? It was 2003. So I think there was like a decade from like 2003 or four to 2014. 2014 was the last time I saw you. And it's been, it's been seven years, but that was like a decade where it kind of went up and suddenly there was this explosion and we were all like big fish in a really small pond. You know, I had a superfood company, you were kind of well known. And I'm, I'm curious now getting the opportunity to talk to you, like what, how did you get started in that world? I know you ended up, I think you're from like the Midwest or something, um, somewhere in and then you came to LA and I don't know, because I remember your story. I don't want to tell your story, but the little I remember was you were looking to get into acting and you really loved making food. And then you decided at some point, aha, I can bring these two together. Is that kind of what happened or tell us your story? 
That's a fantastic Cliff's Notes, by the way, Chris. That's you know, great. Chris, I, I love you. You're my brother. You stole my goddamn question. <laughs> I, I, I want to have the same. I have the same question because we all have our story, and I have my personal story about why I got into vibrant living. And so that's that's my yeah. How did you get into this 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 life and this change? It goes it goes back pretty far because in the in the mid 90s when I was I had just graduated high school and my grandfather had his second cancer diagnosis and at that time my grandfather along with myself and everyone in my family we were not just eating a standard american diet but many of us were smoking and uh, I even went a, a step beyond I was beyond a sad diet I was a junk fooditarian I was the guy who would go to little caesar's pizza in my hometown of Detroit, Michigan. And I would wow. get, you know, an, I would get an extra large pizza with extra pepperoni, extra cheese. You know, at that time, I think they rolled out, they were one of the first that rolled out the cheese inside the crust. And it was like, right. yeah, hook me up with that too. You just oh, drop it's so them on the cheese. though. It's so, you know, great for the it, bad bacteria in the intestines. <laughs> it's, it's, they're happy. They're happy. And, and, you know, you get all that rush of casomorphines and you get all mm. those feel good chemicals rushing through your brain. So there's a reason this stuff is addictive. And if I look back, you know, I was eating probably like a typical American male teenager. I didn't give a shit about what I ate and was just not conscious at all about what I was putting in my body. I wasn't conscious about the food. I wasn't conscious about the impressions from, you know, violent media and whatever. I mean, it goes to a much greater, larger rabbit hole. But when my grandfather was diagnosed with cancer and it was apparent that he was not going to recover from it, you know, his death was a gift and I didn't know it at the time. Wow. You know, I think that in some ways death, and I'm going to go on a tangent for a second, but we, 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 especially in the West, are so frightened of the idea of death and confronting death, which of course is inevitable for the physical vessel, right? But I think in many cases, if I look back at not only my grandfather's passing, but the passing of really important people in my life, important relationships, they were the catalyst through death to awaken me to changing something, realizing something, or making some sort of grand pivot in my life. And my grandfather was one of the first deaths when I was 17 years old to awaken me to the fact that, okay, you know, well, if, if I kind of zoom out and I look at the health problems in our family and we look at how we're eating and what we're smoking and what we're consuming, not just in a physical sense, but an energetic sense, something doesn't feel right about this. And I remember everyone's attitude in my family was like, well, that's just what happens. You know, you get old, you get a disease and you die. It was right. a very nonchalant attitude. And that was really the springboard and the catalyst that got me thinking, what else is there? Because beyond smoking and, you know, violent movies and video games and misogyny and all this kind of American male teenager stuff, what what else is going on in life? And I just went down this rabbit hole. And, and I remember a little over three years later, uh, after voraciously researching holistic health, GMOs, factory farming, organic foods. I, I was standing in my mom's kitchen in, in Detroit just before my 21st birthday. And I said, mom, I, I, I got something to tell you. She's like, okay. I said, I think I'm vegan now. Like <laughs> it was weird for me to even say it. Well, if you're because... looking to address death, you know, being vegan, you're not killing animals. You're not, you know, you're not playing into that, that industry. For sure. But, but it was weird for me to say it because I hadn't, 
it wasn't an intention that I had a I had a goal to be vegan. It was just that the more that I removed artificial foods, processed foods, chemicals, uh, animal flesh, cheese, you know, I just felt better and better and better. I felt more vibrance. I felt more energy. And so after about three years of making the transition from a junk fooditarian to a vegan, I just never looked back. So in May of this year, 2020, or it'll be uh, 23 years that I've been living vegan and eating plant-based. Wow. Um, and I've just That's never beautiful. looked back. Yes. Yeah. So, so I got a question. Mm-hmm. Up until the time you chose to speak about being vegan, do you remember ever choosing you? as opposed to choosing and claiming the stories that you were told life is about. That's really interesting because on one hand, I was raised by a single mother who encouraged me to always question everything. My mom has been an incredible support mechanism my entire life in the sense that she's like, don't take anything for face value, do your own research, trust your gut, listen to your intuition and you will find your truth. You will, you will be led there. And I think that on one hand, I've always had sort of this, um, there, there's a framework, you know, how, how we have like all these frameworks of, of relating to the world. One of the frameworks I've been getting into this past year is, um, something from an author named Gretchen Rubin. It's called the four tendencies. And in the four tendencies, I fall into the rebel category, which makes sense. Cause I've always been extremely, extremely rebellious I've always been anti-authoritarian. I've always questioned everything and, and sort of been in this rage against the machine type mode. And once sort of the layers of the matrix were getting peeled back with, wow, factory farming, genetic modification, um, capitalism, misogyny, sexism, racism. I mean, it, it's funny because like my grandfather's death was just this, this spark plug that just cracked my mind open that I couldn't stop. It's, it's sort of like, I can't remember who said this quote, but it, it was like, the mind is like a parachute. Once it's open, you can't shrink it down to its original dimensions. And I think once my mind and my heart started opening like the proverbial parachute, it was like, oh, I'm questioning everything now. So it was partly that I was a rebellious child, but then once once that rabbit hole, that portal opened, man, I just I've never I've never gotten out of the portal. And I don't want to. <laughs> I like <Yeah>. the portal. <laughs> Welcome to being the freak. Right. Right. You feel better, right? I mean, why do you like your portal? Why do you like this portal? I mean, I, I bet that's a question that most people are asking in their minds, whether they actually ask you in person. It's like, well, well, what's what's wrong with my portal? Why do you like your portal so much? Well, I think there's there's two there's two edges to this sword, though, Chris, is, is it, for me in the sense that as we were talking about the excitement and the jubilation of discovering something like raw food and superfoods and adaptogens and holistic health and TCM. And I say discovering for me, you know, I didn't discover it, but for me and my cosmology saying, what is all of this? So on one edge of the sword, there's been this excitement and experimentation and discovery and like, Ooh, what is this world? It's like worlds within worlds. However, I think for me, when I started to get deeper into my own spiritual practice and I was reading the story of the Buddha and how when he made that journey away from the palace walls and finally looked at the depth of human suffering and pestilence and disease and starvation and everything that was going in around the city in which he lived, for me, the other side of that sword has been, oh, if you really want to see what's going on, there's also an incredible amount of suffering and pain 
and oppression and disillusionment on this planet. So it's been very much a journey of, yes, excitement, jubilation, discovery, experimentation, but also as an extremely sensitive, emotionally in-touch, empathetic man, trying to reconcile the unbelievable suffering on this planet. And and not only just, you know, being in this mode of uh, people talk about saving the world, but recognizing that the depth of my suffering and trauma is being reflected in the people I see. So it's not about, quote, for me, at least saving the world. It's about healing my suffering and my relationship to trauma and then knowing that that ripple effect is going to change the world. And, th- and that's, I mean, that's an ongoing journey, right? But like I said, once you go down that hole, it's like, I don't know. I just, um, I don't want to be ignorant to the suffering and the pain that's on this planet because I feel like in some way my own healing is going to heal the collective. Right. And there's a difference between walking the path and talking the path and, and speaking about you know, what's possible as opposed to actually living it. And it sounds like you have tremendous gratitude for your choice to live it. And, and I, I personally hold the belief that, that you do and that you spoke of living it empowers those around you to see it and choose that for themselves, as opposed to trying to change someone's mind or, or convince people of this, this ideal as opposed to actually seeing it manifest in a human being. Yeah. And, and I heard a, a tremendous quote last night. I, I have a wonderful mentor. His name is Michael Park. He's here in Los Angeles. And I've been a part of his uh, transformational anthropology groups for a decade now. And his teacher was a man named uh, John Bennett, who uh, comes from the uh, the lineage of George Gurdjieff. And Last night, there was one of those, you know, quote bombs that hits you. You know, when you hear a quote and you're like, oh, I'm committing that to memory. And his teacher, John Bennett, said, the world is the way it is because people are the way they are. And so this talk about the world being fucked up or the world being wrong or the world being an awful place, the world is the way it is because of the state of human consciousness and the state of actions that are manifested because of that consciousness. And um, we talk about changing the world. We need to alter and shift and evolve on an individual level, and then the world will change. And I think a lot of activists and, and freedom fighters and people that are trying to create change and evolution, and I speak from experience, have it backward. There's a lot of externalization. Well, if we just pass this legislation, we just do this, and we try and convince people and force them. But if they're not changing on the level of consciousness, then these are just temporary, sort of temporary band-aids in my opinion you know and and uh on the podcast recently my podcast this might get uncomfortable we talked a lot about um elon musk and and his desire to terraform and colonize mars by the year 2050 and this idea of um moving human consciousness into robot bodies or servers or, or the idea that our consciousness will live forever but my thing is if we're not evolving our consciousness collectively then we're just going to be these violent, racist, oppressive, hateful people in cyborg bodies living on Mars. Who wants? I don't want that. Right. I don't that's want good, that. I don't want that future. I, the other side of it is um, what I see happening anyway is consciousness is expanding. It's rising. It's moving. And we're kind of, you know, that phrase, a rising tide lifts all boats. And so, you know, on one level, and I hear and I totally relate with you in, you know, 
the world is suffering because people are suffering. The world is the way it is because people are the way it is. And going back to your idea of suffering. And yet at the same time, what I see happening is I see this tide of consciousness is just kind of lifting up. It's making us more aware. And it's creating you know, the Me Too movement, which is like, Me Too, let's, let's speak our truth to these misogynistic, toxic, masculine, kind of the old school ways we talk about the old school man versus where we're moving into. And I feel that drive. We share that drive in you in terms of how can I make a difference? And what I'd love to ask you, Jason, is where does this drive come from? What, at what point were you compelled and why are you compelled to kind of make, help create this spark and make these differences and make these changes in people? Is it the suffering that you see or, or what was it? This is a really interesting question because I think that for me, if I go back to the level of sensitivity and empathy, I remember even as a child growing up in Detroit, seeing, say, homeless people or seeing, um, you know, animals that had injuries on the streets. And, and even as a very, very young child, my mom, my mom had to deal with me because I wanted to take everyone home and help them. You know, mm. and my mom had to reinforce to me, like, we can't take everyone home and help them. We can't take every animal. We can't take every person. It's not possible. But I remember being very young and feeling other people's pain so acutely. And that's been another level of work for me as an empath to not take on everyone's pain to the point where I'm stultified and I'm shut down where I can't take positive action in the world because I'm... I, I'm taking on everyone's pain, right? So the, the the point of an empath is the 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 superpower of being able to feel other people so deeply and so acutely, and also not letting it shut you down to the point where you can't take action in the world. But for me, I think it was just at a very young age, Chris. I just I felt so deeply for others, and in some ways, I suppose, you know, becoming a chef and a nutrition coach and, and now talking about mental health and emotional wellness and having uncomfortable conversations, it, it, it's part of my desire to not only alleviate my own suffering, but hopefully shine a light to have people look at their own trauma and their own suffering. Because my God, if, if the events of the last year have shown us, we are absolutely in this together. And I, mm. I don't think there's any denying the concept of, of oneness, at least in my mind, because the level of point. suffering and fear and, and scarcity and victim consciousness and pain, and, and we're looking at an earth that needs very much to be healed. And, and, you know, just as a tangent to go back to this idea of colonizing Mars, it's like, we need more heroes on earth, man. Like, why, why, why do you want to jump out? Man. We need more heroes here, okay? Like, hey, well, you know, plan B, we'll just, go, you know, go fuck up another planet. <laughs> that sounds like a great idea. No, yeah. if, 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 we don't, if, we don't, if we don't deal with our suffering, our collective pain, our collective greed, our collective scarcity, uh, uh, the idea of toxic competition, dominance, I mean, the, all of the layers of this, then again, it doesn't matter if, if we're on Earth, Mars, Jupiter, on Sirius, it, it's just going to continue. So the long form answer, Chris, is I've, I've just felt some sort of compulsion my entire life to alleviate suffering. I don't know why. Maybe it's a previous life thing. Maybe in, in, in previous mm. incarnations, I endured a lot of suffering. I think about that sometimes. Yeah. But I think with all of my work on this planet, I, I just, I, I want to address suffering here. 
that's the core i think of one of my missions here i really resonate with that uh, I, I i personally identify as an empath as well <laughs> and that's something that i've i've recently come in contact with and and accepted about myself because i was always so curious as to why i felt such profound energy not just for myself but sometimes just so confused about the energy that i'm feeling and where it's coming from and there's just there's such a <laughs> there's something to say about when you learn that fine line between accepting and receiving the energy around you and managing your own energy and honoring your own energy so that you can show up in the way that you want to show up so that you can support the the consciousness increase so that the suffering therefore decreases right as you stepped into yourself i i I can say I personally stopped suffering as much when I chose to honor my body, my physical health, my mental health. And and it's just, it's really powerful. You know, we're talking about consciousness and its spark in our reality. And a quote that I recently heard this week um, by Carl Jung, it goes, who looks outside dreams, who looks inside awakes. And, you know, I, I personally believe that consciousness has always just been here. And I believe we're, we're embodying more of it by choosing to honor ourselves. And, yeah. <laughs> it's... You mentioned, Jason, that, um, you know, you wanted to bring all these people in and help them. And, you know, we're all in this together and we are one. So just on your own personal level, where do you think is our role it's not a role to help everybody but maybe what what is our role like what do you think the obligation do we have an obligation is there anything out there that's like hey we all you know whether it's as a man or or even as a human what is our role what is our obligation and how do we how do we make those differences i think on a very macro level the metaphor that i use is we are all guests at a party on earth and the framework that I use is I want to be as gracious and generous and respectful and loving to the other guests as the party as I can be, as I can cultivate within myself. It doesn't mean that there are going to be moments where I'm not unkind or rude or grumpy or do things that are selfish, but I'm doing my best to be a gracious guest at this party of life. And I think that my intent is that I want to leave it's cliche to say it, but I, I, I want to leave feeling like my presence and my existence had some sort of beneficial impact. It's such a broad answer to your question, Chris, and I, I wish I could be more specific with it, but it's just this sense that you, you, you talk about obligation. And I do feel that to observe suffering or pain or struggle and not try and contribute love and healing and perspective to those things. Um, it's not wrong. I don't want to get into a binary conversation of good, bad, evil, right, wrong, but, but it's almost like if my soul, the inner voice is compelling me to do something and I ignore that, there's a price mm. that I'm going to pay. You can call that karma. You can call it, you know, the, the law of reciprocity, but 
for me, I know for myself, when I feel a deep soulful compulsion to act and I do not act, I pay an energetic price for that by ignoring that. And so I, I think that we all can cultivate and practice, my God, it's a practice, listening and getting in touch with that, that voice, that compulsion from the soul. We could call it God consciousness. We could call it the, the noosphere, unified field theory. I mean, there's so many ways to try and describe this. But for me, when I feel a soulful compulsion to act in a way that I feel is beneficial, um, I feel I must do it. I feel I must like, there's no, you know, cause if I deny it, there is, there is, there's a, there, there's a, there, there's a, there's some sort of cosmic price to pay. Oh, totally. But when did you realize that? Like, was there an event in your life where you were like, I felt that this was the right decision and I ignored that. Or has it just been, you know, uh, upon your process of, of living and, and practicing what you choose to, choose to practice to benefit yourself and ben- and better yourself was, was I think it it's an been event a, mm-hmm. yeah i think it's been a compounding chris I, I i can't point to a single event per se i think it's just for me been um a process of uh, of observing cause and effect so to speak whereas if there were situations where my gut my soul god Again, we can have so many interchangeable terms here with many names and saying and saying, hey, there's something that isn't right about how this person's treating you. Or maybe there's there there's some kind of injustice that's happening in your ab in your field, not something out there. Right. Because I think there's this idea that how can I change the injustice that's going on in, in you know, uh, you know, Rwanda or Armenia or or a lot of the atrocities that are in a different part of the world, but oftentimes something that was happening in my immediate presence, in my immediate field, and something inside of me said, speak up, do something, protect them. I mean, there's so many examples or, or something feels off about a situation. And again, I, I, I love, you know, these analogies. It's sort of like, um, noticing that there's a, a dragon in the corner of your house and it's a very tiny dragon. And you're like, oh, look at that. There's a dragon in the corner of my house. I, it'll go away. It's it's fine. It's fine. I don't, I don't need to address the monster in my house. And this dragon, this monster continues to grow and grow and grow. And it starts eating the cats and it starts eating the dogs. And next thing you know, you have this giant monster in the corner. And it has to be addressed at some point. So I feel like the the these kind of situations, if we don't listen to that inner voice and we don't listen to the guidance that that thing that we're avoiding that uncomfortable thing that painful thing that thing that we can take positive loving action toward will just keep growing and growing and getting bigger and more difficult to deal with so my whole thing is do i want to trust that voice and trust that intuition and deal with it right now or in my own personal cosmology and observation, let that thing keep growing and getting more beastly and more difficult and painful to deal with because it's going to have to be dealt with at some point. And that, that's right. And what you're saying to me is also the essence of masculinity, whether you're a man or a woman. At some point, you're going to be confronted with situations, obstacles, challenges where it's like you hear that voice, I need to speak up. I need to say something. And I know there's like 7 billion people on the planet. And everyone's got their role. 
And I love what you said. It's it's for each of us to listen to the little whispers and the omens, just like in The Alchemist, where he, all, he talks about listening to those omens, the whispers that come in, they, they guide you in your life. And to your point, every time I've listened to my own, my personal wisdom, I've always made the right choice. And it's when I look back and say, I didn't listen to my gut instinct, or like you said, wherever it comes from, wherever that activation Wherever that source is, we're, we're hearing it. And the baby dragon, I'm going to put that in the show notes because it's such a great analogy, is because we are always given opportunities to step up in some way or another. And I believe that that's what this whole experience of being in the world is about. And we call it suffering if, if we handle it one way, but maybe if we handle it another way, it can be called something else. And that baby dragon can cause us to suffer. But maybe it's because we're avoiding it or we're afraid of it, as opposed to looking it right in the eye and asking the question, why is this here and what can I do about it and what's my responsibility? And again, as as a man and as a man, and whether you're man or non-binary doesn't matter, there's that part of you that's saying, this is not okay, and what is my opportunity to do something about it? And I think that's... That's what this inspiration is about. It's about listening to those inner voices and saying yes, whatever that is for you, and saying no when no needs to be said, and saying yes and supporting what needs to be supported, and and listening to those to those inner voices and trusting. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think one of the one of the frameworks that I am constantly mindful of is posing the question to myself. Not what do I want, because that's very much a mechanism that I think runs most of humanity. What do I want, right? We ask, what do I want? There's nothing wrong with that, but I have found that a massive amount of growth for me has come from asking, what does life want? And oftentimes, that's, that's, I like that. And oftentimes, though, the answer is something that is displeasing to me. Right? It's like, oh. <laughs> You want me to do that, that thing? I don't want to do that thing. Yeah, no one said but it was supposed to be easy, Jason. <laughs> but, life, but, but life, but life is like, no, no, no. We that's what we want you to do, because I, the ego, right? That the the identification that things this this physical bone flesh sinew as known as Jason is the ultimate arbiter of everything. What do I want? Well, you know what I want. I wanted to sleep in today until noon and have a grilled cheese sandwich and you know <laughs> eat, a, eat a tub of ice cream. But what life wanted was get up, do your meditation, feed your animals, go out into the sunshine, give your girlfriend some love, and prepare to connect on a deep level with two men that you know you're going to resonate with, right? So it's like, oh, but I wanted to sit in bed and eat ice cream. Again, nothing wrong with that choice. I'm not saying there's good or, or, or bad, but what do I want? versus what does life want from me are often two very different answers and you get very different results. It's a beautiful perspective. Yeah. That brings me, yeah, I was just going to ask, you know, throughout this journey, throughout your, your time of, of, of living, do you find that the human or what Jason wants it conflicts with how you want to serve the world around you 
and and how do you how do you approach that? How do you how do you deal with that struggle and work through that struggle? Notice how I say through because there's like you said there's no working around because it's just going to come back and it's going to be a bigger bigger beast that is 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 going to have to be processed and worked through. I mean, I'm going to be first to say that I st- I still struggle with materialism, materialistic consciousness, wanting things, thinking that things are going to validate me and make me feel better about myself, and thinking that if I have certain things, other people will value me and acknowledge me more. You know, I, I'm I'm still very much driven kind of like by these 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 dual basic urges, as I like to call them in, in, in life of, you know, I, I'm trying to gain on the gain side more attention, approval, significance, superiority. And I'm trying to avoid discomfort, pain, insignificance, and being ignored, right? So it's like on the one side, I think most of human behavior is trying to get more on the gain side and avoid the things we don't want. It's like trying to achieve non-disturbance. If I just get everything I want, if I get the house in Malibu and I get the brand new Tesla and you know I, I, I get the brand new five finger shoes and I'm wearing the right mala beads and I'm wearing the right jewelry and all my chakras are open and I'm going to the right yoga studio, then I'll be fulfilled. But we know on some level that that's not true. Yet, what do I want, right? The physical man who is still healing his inner child, who still feels not enough and who still feels at times like I need to chase attention, approval, significance, and importance, wants those things. But on the highest level, it's like, I don't need a house in Malibu. I don't need a Tesla. I don't need the $500 mala beads. I don't need any of this shit. It's not that there's anything to them, you know. But let's face it, the five finger shoes does help in your own self validation. <laughs> I mean, I can feel the earth more. There's the exception, and it does beg the question where do we get our validation? Because we do look for validation in so much, and, you know, looking at what the I, the human in me, is looking to do versus, oh, and I love this perspective, what does life want? What what about people who are looking for the Tesla and all that stuff? How how do we shift out of kind of that materialistic, exogenous way of thinking that things are that things from the outside are going to somehow give me my sense of self worth? And what is the process in your experience, Jason? What is the process from going from this externalization of self worth by what people value me versus how do I value myself? Yeah, it's such a deep story. I, I'm I'm really interested in in your perspective here. Well, this I'm I'm going to go on record and say that I'm still very much struggling with this and practicing it. I mean, it's it's a daily thing, especially because a lot of my teachings and presence in business are embedded into the social media framework. And I don't want to throw social media under the bus or or burn it at the stake here. Although I do think in light of certain documentaries like The Social Dilemma and Fake Famous, there's some really great documentaries that have come out recently, that these platforms are rigged and programmed and coded and and use AI algorithms to continue to feed our sense of tribalism and conflict and comparison and not enoughness and thinking we always need more. They're absolutely wired and programmed to do that. Why? Because it keeps people on the platforms longer so they can sell you things. Exactly. 
That's right. So there's that side of it that 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 is that framework that that if you are a person who is engaged in a spiritual practice and you are using social media to connect for business for for making money and cultivating that financial energy in the world it's extreme in my opinion extremely difficult and you're going to get more challenges from spirit because it's going to show you over and over and over and over again all the ways that you're not enough why because that sells wow. If you don't feel enough, they can sell you things. If, if, if we were able to snap our fingers or wave a magic wand and all, you know, like you said, Chris, almost 8 billion people on the planet were to fully accept and, accept and love themselves as they are, entire trillion dollar industries would crumble overnight. Crumble. Preach. So much of our capitalist structure is you're not enough. You're not attractive enough. You don't have enough. You don't make enough. You're not the right weight. You don't look yeah. right. You don't Charge hang out with more. the right people. Dude, I mean it's 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 nefarious and it goes deep into our psyche. And especially if you have not enoughness trauma or comparison trauma from your childhood, that will just continue to stick the finger in the wound. So I, I say this because I'm still on a daily basis I, I wrestle with this. We talk about validation. I think as humans, because we do have deep generational programming of tribalism and community, we do need a certain amount of attention and validation, right? I, I'm not going to say that I think that human beings should live in isolation or we should all go to caves in the Himalayas and not interact with people. We do need for our sense of physical selves, a sense of connection to community. And that does involve validation and attention. Where I think things get tricky is when we start to associate the car, the house, the amount of money in the bank account, our portfolio, our waist size, our dick size, our chest size, the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with, our zip codes at all. And we think that defines who we are. That's when materialism gets very toxic and dangerous because we live in a material world. We're, we're in this dimension. We're on this planet where, you know, I mean, look, I have a, I have a MacBook Pro and I have an iPhone and I have this microphone and I do have a car and I live in this house in LA. We're I think part of like the ascension process that we talk about in the spiritual community is, is the denial of the material. I don't want to do that. I'm, I'm not trying to deny the material, but what I'm encouraging people to do as I practice it is to separate our sense of who we think we are from our stuff, our titles, our numbers, and these arbitrary values that the world uses to try and tell us if we're good enough or bad enough. That's where it's fucked up. And that's where people get re-traumatized over and over and over again. So I'm not saying having a Tesla is bad or having a house in Malibu is bad, those kind of things. But when you think that's who you are and you associate that with your sense of self, that's where things can get very toxic and very dangerous. Right. And it's never enough, regardless of how much you have, because that is not ever going to satisfy that, 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 that hole in our heart, which comes from, why am I here? What is my purpose? What is my value? And just to your point to emphasize that, don't feel guilty because, well, just know that millions and millions of dollars are being spent to understand how the brain, through what you were talking about, through tribalism and community, we've been genetically wired a certain way. And that millions of dollars have been spent to kind of figure out how to market and flash those subconscious mechanisms and so there's a part of us that, no matter how hard we try, if we constantly ex are exposed to that, there's, it's going to be an uphill battle. It's just like you and I, we've talked about food and raw food, and we know that 
there is food science, which you no, know, if you get kind of in that rabbit hole, you're going to be psychologically, emotionally, and mentally addicted to those foods, to the social media. And that's why it's hard. So a lot of people are blaming themselves. In fact, we blame in our society overweight people for being overweight without really understanding the, the full picture because we haven't changed as a species. We've been, we have the same desires and needs that we've had for thousands of years, and yet we're obese in a way we never have because the food science is there and it's tricking us and the marketing and the social media those guys are spending millions of dollars and they know how to do it and they know better than you it's like trying to argue with a used car salesman you know trying to negotiate a price and you thought you got a good deal this is what this guy does all day long as his job and you think you just got one over on him you, he ha he had you sized up at the moment you walked in and that's what these these social media platforms they know what's going to work and yes, I love them too. I go on there. I love them. But I have been consciously moving away from especially Facebook where I used to spend a lot of time. And now I spend very little time. And there's two things that's happened. It's like my, it's like the same thing that happened with food is what's happening for social media where my appetite is now, it's like my palate's changing. I used to love burgers and fries and, and, and I come from Philadelphia area. So Philly cheesesteaks. I used to have a Philly cheesesteak at least once a week for 25 years. And so moving out of that into, hey, there's something about eating healthy that makes me feel amazing and that's what I'm choosing. And recognizing now when I go back onto Facebook and all those social media platforms, I'm like, wow, this is really addictive. And holy shit, how did they know that's exactly, that's the, those are the pants I've been looking for. Those are the, that's the special watch that I've been thinking about. And like, how did they know? And yes, that's the perfect ad for me. And I think I'll buy that right now. And I, I am amazed at how happy I've been with the purchase I've made on social media at the same time going, this is kind of scary. It's such yeah. a paradigm shift when we when we when we actually choose to look at it like that and understand. You know, you said you love social media, and I was like, I don't love social media. <laughs> you know, because uh, I I really value the things that I do love, and you know, I I think there's a fine line though because these are tools. These are tools that we use to connect with each other, just like this podcast. If we didn't have this technology, I. I wouldn't be able to be speaking with someone in LA when I'm in Arizona and having these conscious conversations and being able to up-level myself. This is my journey, right? And, you know, I recently moved and I gave away and sold all of my furniture besides my bed and most of my clothes, most of my stuff. And, you know, I moved it all. And as I'm unloading it all, I'm sitting here and I'm like, I still have too much shit. It's, it's heavy. It's, it's exhausting. And, you know, I'm living through this paradigm shift of, of letting go of these material things and really stepping into what it looks like to love myself. And, I, I, you know, I thought I loved myself. I thought I loved myself when I met Chris Whitco and I did a cleanse. And I let go of 35 pounds and I felt healed. I felt new. And that was just the baby step into realizing, oh, loving myself isn't giving myself up. Loving myself isn't defined based on what other people believe of me and see me as and define me as. It's not about 
living that story that I was told for so long would bring me success, would bring me adoration. It's really about sitting with yourself and defining based on all of the interpretation from the world around you, what works for you right now. And it's okay for that to change. It's okay for that to morph and, and catalyze into something even more. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer now that I am a, I'm, I'm an infinite being and I can and choose to be whatever I choose to be. And when I live that and talk that and speak that and actually take the time to love me the way that I want to love the world, it's, it's profound. It's, it's, it's like a nuclear explosion going on in every single one of my cells when I reaffirm to every single one of my cells and the trillions of cells that are supporting this body temple. When I reaffirm that, it's like they're on board. They're like, fuck yeah. Yes, Chris. Yes. Let's do this again. And let's keep learning and let's keep up leveling because infinity exists in our in our nomenclature for a reason because it is attainable and it's not even meant to be attainable because there's so much there that we can just keep going and that to me is life that to me is this experience yeah i i i want to reflect back to you christopher you know my my thoughts on on infinity because i i've I've certainly had a lot of moments. It sounds like you have as well of, of being, I don't even know how to describe it. So dissolved into the infinite, you know, there, there, there are moments that I've had in meditation. There's moments I've had on an ayahuasca ceremony. There's moments I've had in, in a sensory deprivation tank where it was just this sense of boundlessness. And it's almost like um, words, you know, we, we use language to try and describe these certain experiences we have in life. And yet I feel sometimes where I'll stop myself and I'll be like, I'll, I'll, I'll observe myself using words and go like, this doesn't even come close to describing this thing. And I laugh because we're doing the best we can. We're, we're humans in these bodies with words and syllables and grunting these things that come out of our mouths and like... Oh, he understands. Hopefully, maybe he doesn't. I don't know. We're trying. And 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 I think to me I laugh because I have to look at the folly of the human experience of of acknowledging the infiniteness you speak of, but then also being limited to describe the infinite that we feel. Right? It, it's 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 just funny to me because I feel you and at the same time I'm like I'm willing to bet that Chris's perception of his infinite experience is probably internally different than mine. And we're trying to use words to experience and describe our experiences, but somehow we're like, eh, it, it, we're doing the best we can with words, but it doesn't really cut it. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Jason, you talked about sensory deprivation and tanks. I'd like to know more about, I know you're a really holistic eater. You're really healthy. What do you think... Lots of change. You know, we're talking about loving ourselves. I don't think my father would ever use that phrase to, I'm trying to figure out how to love myself. That's just not what we did as men back then. And, um, and you talked about sensory deprivation. What other things do you, do you advocate or maybe you've tried? And I'm, I'm curious because recently I have, um, had an experience with MDMA 
to help open up some of my heart centers and and it's it's something like I, my whole life I have not been into drugs I've not been into anything like that and yet I tried that and it really changed my relationship I kind of did it in a controlled um, medicinal way it wasn't a recreational thing we did it was like there is a purpose it was a, it was it was a purpose to open the heart and to connect with my partner and. And I know you talked about deprivation tanks. I was just curious, are there anything that maybe in kind of as we're moving into expanding consciousness, anything that you've tried? Like talk more about the, the tank and other things that you might share your experiences with. Yeah, I'm glad you asked, Chris. I, I also think that to your point about the MDMA experience, I know that when I have tried entheogens and, and psychedelics and different ceremonies and experiences, of which I've done quite a few over the years, because... I have found them to be very opening and very moving and transformational for me. Um, I think, you know, in, in, in that regard, if we talk about things like psilocybin and MDMA and um, ayahuasca, iboga, a lot of the things that, that people are using to not only do some deep psychological trauma healing, but also physical healing, there's a, there's a lot of vilification in the wellness community of like, oh, you know, drugs are bad and you should never do drugs. And that's, that's polluting the body temple. But I don't agree. I think that's a sweeping generalization because I think, first of all, there's incredible wisdom and connection between the human vessel and certain plant species. And I also feel, for me, having done quite a few experiences with, with these plants, that my intention going into the experience will shape and mold the experience as it's unfolding. For example, like if I'm going to go out, which I've done, you know, at Burning Man and I do a shit ton of mushrooms and I'm just like, let's, you know, party and fucking dance. Um, my experience on the psilocybin is going to be very different as opposed to me saying, I'm going to go into the woods with some friends. We have this trauma we're working on. We're very aware of what we want this thing to facilitate. And then the experience that I'm having is very different. It's, it's almost as if the plants are listening. It's a clunky way of describing it, but I feel with these sort of consciousness expanding experiences, the environment and the intention color what I'm going to experience. That's that's what I've felt for sure. And the other thing too is, you know, I, I've definitely, I guess, kind of gone deeper into the sort of biohacking as we call it now, which I, I, I want to comment on that in a moment. Um, I'm a huge, huge fan of far infrared therapies for detoxification, massive, massive fan of far infrared therapies. Uh, I'm a huge fan of hot and cold therapy. I've actually been doing a lot of that. Uh, I had a recent motorcycle accident and I've been doing a lot of really cool acoustasonic cold laser, hot, cold plunging for, for my clavicle and my, my shoulder and my ribs. I, I had some pretty massive injuries. So, um, doing far infrared therapy, doing hot, cold, doing cold laser therapy, doing acoustasonic, which is this machine that does high intensity, um, sound waves to break up inflammation and scar tissue in the body. So I, I, I do like technology. I, I'm not anti-technology. What I think that I've noticed, though, in the biohacking sphere with all of this tech that's coming out is I think, um, <laughs> for lack of a better term, I see a lot of bro culture in the biohacking sphere of like, bro, I got the latest shit, bro. Yeah, man, I got like this $50,000 like hyperbaric chamber, bro. And I'm like drinking, you know. I'm drinking shamanistic goat's blood and, and, you know, I'm eating bat spleens and I'm doing all this stuff. And it's like, okay, but why? <laughs> My question always goes back to why, why are you doing it? Yeah, are you actually want, doing, you know, why, what is I your just intent? I clarify, here? 
you're not just using this technology. You're using it with the intention that you were speaking of before. And, and who that, doesn't want some bat? The goal. Who doesn't want, want some, some bat swing every now and then? I mean, you know, maybe some fried in coconut oil or something. It's not <laughs> vegan, it, it, you know, but the coconut oil is healthy to fry in, I guess. I, I just think, you know, I, I, I need to speak openly with you guys. I see, I see a, a lot of the ego and the parading around and the one-upsmanship in the wellness industry and the biohacking communities and the food industries where it's like, I want to seem like the coolest kid on the block. And it's very much a childlike response. You want to seem, I got the new shiny toy. Everyone love me. Like, let's just call it what it is. I got wow. the newest, shiniest toy. Look at me. I'm the coolest kid on the block. And I, I'm not, look, we're, people got a lot of shit to work on. I do too. And I just, I'm observing though, my tendency to want to do that. And I, I, I try and stop myself from doing it because I don't want to do it for those reasons. I don't want to, you know, get the infrared sauna and the cold plunge tank and the cold laser and, you know, like how much, you know, it, and, and it's so funny because I feel like we have this, this place called Erwan here in Los Angeles and I like Erwan. I also feel like it's kind of the hub for that mentality of like, <laughs> yeah, oh my God. So you got like the $800 ashwagandha. How was it? It was amazing. Oh my God. I need to spend $800 on ashwagandha <laughs> too because Cindy's doing it. So I have to do it too. And again, it goes back into the capitalistic <sighs> comparison trap. And look, the wellness consciousness field and the community is not above that. There's a lot of people doing that shit and I've done it too. But I'm just trying to be better at flagging myself right. before I engage in that kind of behavior because it doesn't lead anywhere. We take our stuff into these, like whatever our stuff was, and then we move into like, hey, I'm going into the wellness. You know, we take our stuff, and if we haven't dealt with it, I, I've seen it, and I'm sure you've seen this a lot, Jason, to addicts, to our drug addicts, move into like the, the the raw food or the wellness world. And now they're like, they take their addict mentality, and now they're applying it to like cacao and ashwagandha and shizandra and all this stuff. And they're still addicts, but now they're addicts. For like, be pollen. 100%. 100%. You know, there's this, there's this term that I've been using a lot, and I like to share it with people, harmonious balance. Because balance, when we think of it, it's like 50-50, but you can still be balanced in harmony as a 2080. And it just really depends on where you're at. And, you know, I feel like there's this harmonious balance between this material world that we talk about that's so restrictive and, and so it, it's so embedded within the story paradigm of, of, of capitalism and that harmonious balance between that and wellness consciousness, because there is so much truth. There's so much science now. There's so much validation that we've seen as individuals by by applying wellness consciousness and by living wellness consciousness and you know i i struggle sometimes with that because you know i i have a biomat and it has that far infrared right it has the heat has all the has all the good shit in it and it it's amazing and you know it's 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 hard to not talk about sometimes because how do we relate with people in that story in that capitalist kind of materialistic story uh, when they're not even available for the wellness consciousness conversation without without knowing like, oh, there is some validity. There is some science behind this material thing you speak of. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, right? Because I think on the one hand, if we realize that 
humans are very much motivated by these ancient programs and, and our, our ancient wiring and our neurology of wanting importance, again, wanting significance. We compare ourselves to others. We want to be the fanciest one in the tribe. We want to have, you know, the the coolest outfit and the, and the feathers and the great jewelry and all. I mean, it, this is not a new conversation. It's just taken on greater ramifications with 8 billion people and the technology we wield now. I think to your point, you know, I, I, what I try and do is strike a balance of honoring my personal truth and also trying to meet people where they're at. Because if, 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 if I'm in a room full of people and I'm lecturing in, um, uh, say a room full of people in in Detroit, and they're they're conservative Republicans, and they're auto workers, and and I'm talking to them about raw food and detox and transformation. If I'm talking about you know unlocking your chakras and God consciousness and equanimity, and and it's not going to resonate, right? But if I see exactly. a room, if if I see a room full of people that are struggling with their weight, as superficial as it might seem to talk about weight loss. I need to meet people where they're at. And I think that for, for myself, I've done this and, and, and other friends and colleagues in sort of the wellness consciousness community, they don't change the way they speak or change the way they approach based on the audience. They're just delivering the same message to everyone. And if you're talking to a room full of conservative Republican auto workers in Detroit, you're probably going to get a lot of eye rolling and like, this guy's full of shit versus if I'm speaking in Northern California to people who are already eating raw food. And I'm like, okay, look, we're going to talk about activated charcoal and we're going to talk about, you know, using a biomat and detox. I mean, it, you really have to strike a balance of honoring where you're at, your personal truth, but speaking to people in a way that's going to resonate. And look, some people are going to be more motivated to eat vegan or raw or try infrared therapy because of selfish motives. Like I want my skin to be glowing at age 50. I want to feel good. I want to lose 35 pounds. I'm not saying any of those motivations are bad, but right. some people are just more motivated by those things than perhaps opening their heart and their mind to being more one with God, right? You, you really, I think, have to speak to people where they're at. And that is so true. Yes. I've been speaking to people for a decade and there's, there's a balance between there's that yin and the yang, whereas in the paradox, you want to be completely authentic and, and speak your truth and not kind of, you know, change who you are based on the situation. Yet at the same time, what's the point of, of going to, and I've done this thing, I gave a raw food talk once and I never mentioned the word raw food because it was cowboys and businessmen. And I knew, and I believe that we are multifaceted beings, all of us. And there is a, I find the facet that is my truth that connects. And that, that's how I kind of justify like rewriting the message so that the people receiving can taste it. It's like you cook the meal so that the people can enjoy it. And yes, if they have been eating a certain way, not everyone's going to take uh, the same kind of diet just to make it simple and to change your message. The broke, if you've got a bunch of bros, the conversation is going to be very different. In fact, if they're very excited by the new shiny thing, that might be exactly what you use to get your message and it kind of sneak under that, that, well, because we all have, we all have our filters and what we're looking to do is get to that, that deeper truth. And so for me, the deep truth is the deep truth. And I can spin that same truth into a multitude of different dimensions. It's still the truth. And there's a, 
thousand points on the spectrum of each person's willingness and ability to receive. So to me, I'm not compromising my message when I change it constantly, what I feel like I'm doing. And maybe I am. Maybe there's a part of, there are some people that never change their message and be like, you are not telling the truth. And it's, it's like, like, well, my, my truth, truth isn't their truth. And so, so what I'm looking to do is see if I can connect with their truth and find the part of me that connects and stay true to that. Aho. Love that. Aho, <laughs> indeed. Love that. Jason. Jason. <laughs> you recently did a podcast on toxic masculinity. I would like, I believe Chris and I would, would like to know, <laughs> what do you envision or embody as a healthy masculine man? What does that look like? It's a fantastic question. I remember growing up and having all of the examples and impressions of masculinity being very much grounded in dominance and power and violence and just taking what's yours, however you want, whenever you want. You know, th th that was not only my classmates and my schoolmates, um, but reinforced by some of the, the masculine archetypes in my family. Agreed. And I remember, again, as I mentioned, feeling like a, a very sensitive, uh, emotional, empathetic young man. I didn't have the words for it as a young man, but feeling the pressure to, you know, be in a paradigm of sports, for instance, you know, and, and, and I played basketball and ran track and did soccer and all those things. But it was sort of this, this multi-headed hydra of you need to be the most powerful, you need to be the most dominant. You need, you need to be the loudest in the room and just, you know, be unstoppable and take whatever you want. It's yours, you know, and, and, and this mechanism of now that I'm unraveling and have words to it of a system that was very much set up for me to be able to do those things and experience zero repercussions. Okay. That was the other thing was like, yeah, I can be super sexually promiscuous as a young man. I can be misogynistic. I can be dominant. I can oppress people. I can do whatever the fuck I want was basically the messaging I got as, as, as a, as a white appearing man. I'm, I'm actually multiracial, but, uh, lat you know, Latino and, 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 you know, white, but, but the message on, on every side was just, you do whatever you want, right? Just, just he who commands the most power and dominance will win in every facet of life. So I've had to do a massive and continue to do a massive amount of re-landscaping on this, Christopher, of, of, I was working with my therapist, Gary, a few years ago. And, and that's another thing I wanted to go back, Chris, to your question about sort of the, the, the things that I've been doing in, in my, my sort of wellness regimen. Psychotherapy and somatic healing has been absolutely instrumental in, in, in my mental health and, and doing trauma healing. And one thing that I realized years ago working with my therapist, Gary, I, I came up with a term and threw it at him. And I said, I think one way that I'd like to describe how I feel about myself is being energetically androgynous. He said, what do you mean by that? I said, I, I very much am identify as a, a heterosexual male, a cisgendered heterosexual male. I am attracted to women and, and you know, there's no confusion in me about that. But I think energetically, if I go back to childhood, I exhibited a lot of tendencies and behaviors that I was vilified for, for being too girly, being a pussy, right? You're, you're such a pussy, you know, man up, stop crying, stop fucking crying, 
all those messages as a child, right? And we get those in our society of you're too feminine. My thing is like, if I'm focused on being androgynous or balanced, if you will, then that means I can work on embodying the prototypical masculine tendencies or behavioral patterns of, you know, being demonstrative, being strong, being protective, being clear about my actions, being anchored in my mission, right? Taking positive action and moving things forward and looking at my fear and doing it anyway. Prototypical masculine tendencies. But I can also exhibit and not be afraid now as a 43-year-old man to say, I'm also extremely sensitive and I'm also deeply nurturing and I cry a lot and I feel things and I want to heal myself and heal others. And I'm okay with that as a prototypical feminine exhibition of my behaviors. Absolutely. And so this balance and this androgyny is something that I'm owning now. And I'm like, yeah, this is who I am. And if you don't like it, fuck it. It's who I am. And I'm owning it. And that's an inspiration because whether or not we admit it, everybody's feeling that on some level, whether we're recognizing it consciously or we are feeling it unconsciously, but not knowing what the words are. Everything you just said, I'm a cons- I've been a consultant in corporate America for 20 plus years. And I can tell you the most manly kind of executives out there, they're all shifting too. This isn't just a thing that, you know, you're experiencing and I can relate to. It's like, no, this is what's happening, man. You are maybe... In my opinion, I I would say that you're a little bit ahead of the game in terms of recognizing it, calling it out, owning your vulnerability, embodying that and saying, this is what's happening, and I ain't scared to say it. And that is unpro- that is deprogramming because I, like you, I grew up blue-collar, blue middle-class, working neighborhood where you had to fight – to, to prove that, that you weren't you weren't gay or whatever. I mean, because the worst thing you could have been called was gay back then. For whatever reason, there was such a fear around it. And now I talk to my kids, they're like, we don't know what the problem ever was. We don't even understand why that was even an issue. And it's just, it's, it's interesting. So now we're given permission to look at ourselves and be vulnerable. And that's happening everywhere. It's in, and you can see it because what's happening in kind of in in the, in the world when you look at companies, they are they're call, of course again we're talking about multifaceted. They're not calling it the terms you're calling it. They've got their own words for it. You know the the masculine dominant way of I'm the boss, do as I say. That's the old school. The new school where it's like the feminine energy is just we're, we're nurturing everyone's feelings. In the business world, that's called buy-in. Do we get buy-in from all of our stakeholders? That's what they say. What they're really saying is how does everybody contribute in a multi-collaborative way? So everything, I'm just, my point is what you're actually saying, what you just said, everything about toxic masculinity, energetically androgynous, which I've heard you say on your podcast several times, actually, is such a beautiful new way of verbalizing what we're all feeling. Because I think women, are women, females, have already started. They're kind of, they've got one up on us. They're already embracing their masculine in a way that 
They're the real leaders here. (laughs) Well, it's it's kind of balancing. It's balancing out because there was was an oppressive kind of thing that's been going on. And now the oppression is like, no, this oppression isn't working. It doesn't work for anyone. So let's let go of this oppression. And the, the, the females out there who are embracing their masculine are really rocking it. And as men, we're looking at all the wiring, all the mental wiring we've had over the last, our lifetimes, and, and, and just asking the correct question of like, is this real? Is this true? Is, where's the bullshit? And let's start fucking labeling it and calling it out. And that's what this podcast is about. It's like, this whole idea of being a man and being a woman is just nonsense. There is no, that's what it means to be a man. That's what it, that, that's nonsense. What's really truth is, where am I embracing my masculinity and embracing my femininity? And where am I out of balance? And where am I blocking it? Where am I repressing it? And where am I being an asshole in the world? Where am I expressing my, my, my bigotry in that level? My, you know, my gender bigotry and, or my ignorance and how am I expressing it? And so that's the discussion that's exciting because men are, everybody's feeling it. Men and women and non-binaries and, and the whole non-binary thing is, is kind of a out, an outcome of this real, like, I don't have to be, this or that there's a whole fucking spectrum of gender you had that uh, i think you had someone on your podcast a while back talking about gender versus sex like we're born with our sex and our gender is a construct and we're we're on this spectrum and we're still we're all just figuring it out man so thank you for really i think i think your definition was was just so beautiful and so juicy and so well thought out it's clear you've been thinking about it a lot, so thank you for for saying it the way you did. Yeah, thank you, Chris, and and I appreciate your your wonderful response to that. Uh, it it brings up to me, you know, when you're talking about sort of the old paradigm, it's it's like capitulation. Do what I say. I'm in charge, and if you don't, there's going to be consequences. Versus exactly. the new paradigm, which is cooperation. As long as we're all invested, and there's that buy-in everyone wins not this person at the top of the pyramid wins and everyone else gets fucked you know it, it to me it's the shift from capitulation to cooperation and i love how beautifully you you outline that yeah i mean these discussions are so important um speaking about how we interact with the outside world because you know it's changing in the outside world and it is equivalent equivalently changing for us as individuals in the inside world right you know, I mean, we have these conversations and we speak about how we can be in the world. And, and there's this mirror there, you know, the concept of the mirror. And it's just how how are we treating ourselves? And and this upgrade that we're experiencing in the outside world, it's so important to to really have the conversation and honor what's going on in the world because we're healing as individuals. And we can't heal unless we experience that outside because that's exactly what's going on in the inside. And when we choose to express in the outside world, it's almost like re-embodied in, in the in, internal world uh, within us. Jason, you mentioned uh, capitulation versus cooperation. And I think that's interesting because I think the business world is going that direction, and I think we're all going that direction. It comes out of, I look at it as 
when Darwin first put out his theory, and it kind of got it kind of got taken and then re-put out there as dog eat dog survival of the fittest, which was the justification for atrocities. And so, and even in business, it's like, oh, survival of the fittest. They deserve to be overtaken and destroyed because they're not surviving. They're not as fit. We're, we're the dog eat dog. And the truth is, dogs don't eat dogs. They bark. They growl. But they don't eat each other. And that's that's the fan. That's the fallacy. You know, it's not a survival of the fittest per se. It's how do we cooperate in this environment so that we can all survive? There's niches. You know, the species will find their niche. It's a type of cooperation with nature where you go to Galapagos and you have the, the turtles with the really long necks so they can get the leaves at the top of the bush and the turtles with the really short you know, necks that can get We're cooperating with nature. There is a sense of cooperation there and so we're moving out of that dog eat dog kind of bs kind of to be a man you've got to dominate and we're looking at what we're doing but kind of what what has the generation before us done they dominate they destroyed let's wipe out ecosystems let's clear cut the amazon forest so that we can grow ham grow hamburgers you know basically and Water and plastic, the idea where you, I've been to Bali and you go to these places where the plastic is just overwhelming the island. And who cares? Like, where is this sense of... We don't see it. Where's the sense of, this is, this is our planet we're destroying. And you see it with Greta Thornburg and this new generation going, wait a minute. This old paradigm where we just seek and destroy and dominate nature isn't the truth. The truth is what you said, cooperation. It's not capitulating. It's not destroying a forest so I can grow hamburgers. It's, we're all in this together, man. What what are we going to do to make this place survive? And it's time to step up, speak up, speak truth to power, as you said earlier, and say, this ain't cool. We've got to do something different. That's what we're doing. That's what's happening. Luckily, the young generation isn't, you know, they're not buying the shit from the previous generations anymore. They're finding their own way. And that's that's a beautiful thing. So I have hope. <laughs> hope is good. <laughs> you Although, gotta have it, I think. You have well, yeah. Go ahead, Chris. <laughs> you know, I hope is good. Hope is good. Uh, you know, and I think it's it's a it's a it's a facet of life, and and we can hold on to it. I just think it's a it's a really small percentage of 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 life, especially when we're on our path and we're living our mission. Because hope is there, and it's it might be one percent, you know, uh, but then it comes back to us as individuals and how we choose to to step into the world and show up and push hope aside and actually live that way and show others that uh, you can have hope and you can live it and you can be it and you can be here right now. In other words, just don't be addicted to hopium. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that was a tremendous dad joke. Beautiful. That was, I was, that was a, about to say that. That was <laughs> an Olympic, Olympic level dad joke. Silver, gold medal, challenging, absolutely. Um, Chris, you brought up the uh, the question. Say more about toxic masculinity. I also have a question for you from something you brought up in the podcast, which I think is very apropos to this podcast, which is self sabotage and this idea that we get in we get in our own way and 
I think there's a lot of ways to look at self-sabotage. I see it as the as the number one reason why people aren't getting where they want to go. And I think it's because people are, well, there's a million reasons. Each person has their own reasons and what that means to each person. But how do we, how do we get out of our own way? What, and I, you talked about on your podcast, you did a really good job. I'd like you to kind of expand on that here and talk about how, how do we get on our own way? How does our cultural conditioning kind of reinforce keeping us down and how do we break out of that? Well, I think to me, uh, some of the central elements of self-sabotage are, first of all, I think that to, to get very fundamental, it's it's usually a fear of success, fear of failure. It's usually kind of to these large, and they're large buckets, right? I don't want to be so pedantic as to say it's one or the other. There there are tentacles and, and branches and offshoots of both of those, but I really feel that on, on, on the one side, I mean, fear, fear of failure is easy to understand. We self-sabotage because I'm afraid of failing and and then my sense of self and who I am would be ruptured. I think this is a big a big part of both sides of it is we, we have an idea and a construct of who we think we are. And if I try and I fail at something, especially in the, in the framework of a society, we talk about social media again, that tells us we need to be great at something from the get-go, right? We have these messages mm. of, oh, overnight success. And this person started this, this channel on YouTube. And then all of a sudden it went to 10 million followers in a month. We have examples of that, but those examples are paraded around to such a point that if we start a new venture, start a new business, start a new creative endeavor, and it doesn't quote, be successful in a certain time frame, we're afraid of being failures, right? Because we're conditioned to think that failure is a bad thing, that we're awful. We're shitty people if we fail. So it is conditioning and it is unrealistic expectations of what success should look like. The other side of it, the fear of success is something that's a little more tricky and nefarious. And I think that human beings think that they want certain things. They think that they want a seven-figure business, a 10-figure business. They think that they want, again, the Tesla, the beach house, the beautiful wife, husband, whatever. But I think that when it comes down to it, there is a level of imposter syndrome on one hand of if I actually do become successful and people find out I'm not worthy of it, what if I'm found out? What if people realize I'm not actually worthy of all of this? So there's a worthiness issue you know, enraptured in fear of success. But the other thing too is like, you know, we see the Lamborghinis and the McLarens and the Teslas and the mansions and the watches and the beautiful people and the plastic surgery and all this shit on social media. But it's like, the maintenance of those things, we don't think about what it's like to have a $3,000 a month car payment. We don't think about what it's like to have a $20,000 a month mortgage. We don't think about what it's like to manage 500 people in a company to make nine figures. We just want the rewards. We want the success, but we don't want to do what it takes to get there and then maintain it. And then maybe we don't even want it. We want the reward and we want the, the pot of gold at the end of the fucking rainbow. But we don't want, you know, it's like every, this is cliche, everyone wants the rose bush, no one wants the thorns, okay? Right. And so part of, I think, the fear of, of success is you don't want the shit that comes along with it and the pain and the tough choices and the amount of money it takes. This is the other thing with success. Success is a trap, dude. Success is a trap. And here's why. Because as soon as you become successful, people expect more and more 
and more and more of you all of the time. And mm. to get off that treadmill is dangerous because people are like, why would you quit? You have all this success. You have this TV show. You have this money. You have all, and I'm saying it from experience. It's like, as soon as I got a TV series, everyone wanted everything from me. You got to, oh, dude, season two's got to crush it even harder and you got to make even more money and let's make this bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Success is not all it's cracked up to be. It really isn't, especially if you're in a paradigm of people constantly wanting more from you. And that is a very toxic aspect of our culture of the not enoughness. It's not enough to accomplish something. You have to keep accomplishing more. So what does success mean to you now? Now that you've experienced that, that incredibly toxic idea, story of success, what does that mean to you now? How do you define it for Jason Robel? I'm still defining it, Christopher. I still am. A great answer, of course. Yeah. I, I, I really, I really am. I, I think, hmm. I think what I'm getting close to in terms of an answer, I wish I, I, I wish on one hand, like I had a great soundbite for you, but I'm still working through this is, <laughs> can I create, can I create a paradigm for myself of success that is not bound to all of these definitions we're talking about. It's a, it's a lot of unraveling. What I think I'm right. getting close to is not happiness, because I don't think happiness is sustainable. I think everyone has this thing of like, I just want to be happy. happy. Happiness, like suffering, is not sustainable. There's ebbs and flows and waves of our emotional life. And I think, I think what I'm trying to define more, Christopher, is, is what does contentment and joyfulness feel like for me. And that being the arbiter of success, not I'm happy all the time, but like all is well. I'm content with what is. All is well, and I'm content with what is. There's something in that framework that I feel is closer to the truth for me rather than constantly chasing happiness, validation, approval, acknowledgement, and success in the material sense we're talking about. But joyfulness and contentment and a feeling of all is well, and that I can lay my head down at night and feel good about what I've created and what I've shared and what I've contributed, that's sort of the box that I want to operate more in. And I'm still figuring it out. I really still am figuring it out. <laughs> you know, Jason, thank you, because that was the soundbite we wanted. Because that was the most <laughs> human thing you could have said. That was so you. Thank you. That was so vulnerable. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing you express this, and that's what we want here is vulnerability and humanness. That's why we have this podcast is to record and express and to share what that looks like and what that sounds like. So thank you. Thank you for your answer. And what you said reminds me of my trips to Bali and to India and to other parts where we would consider them not as materialistically advanced. And yet what we all notice, not just me, anyone who goes there, you can't help but notice the joy with which people live their lives, having what we would consider absolutely nothing. And I remember talking to a guy who he thought he was you know, very wealthy because his family owned a little um, coffee farm and, or whatever, coffee, coffee plantation, whatever that's called. And I tried some of this coffee and he was you know, bragging about he had this family generational thing. And he said, well, where are you from, America? Why don't you bring a girl here so I can marry her? 
and she can experience this too. And we're joking. I said, well, why don't you come to America and get a girl? And he's like, why would I leave Bali? I have everything. And this idea that no matter how poor you are, you can go out into the woods and eat as much as you want because food's growing everywhere. There's plenty of food and and everyone is so happy. And I remember there was this Western-owned restaurant that I would go to. It was kind of a raw food, vegan place, and I loved going there. And it was just all catered towards towards Westerners. And the, the Balinese workers were there, and a dog had gotten up, a local kind of just you know wild dog, I don't know, gotten up and was stealing a donut or whatever it was, a pastry or something. And I was just like thinking that they were going to shoot the dog, they were going to yell at it. And they both noticed, they look at each other and just started laughing. And I thought, I just thought, that is so, I was like, I wanted to say something, get out of there, you know, don't. And I was just like, wow, just this idea that nothing is so important to get upset about. And to your point, finding that place where it's, it's not going to be the materialistic, it's not going to, it's going to be that place of, of peace that we somehow can feel. You said, I want that feeling of peace. And I thought, can we just feel it? And that's something I read about a few years back. Whatever it is you're looking to achieve, whether, and to me, I, I personally really do want a Tesla. <laughs> and I have that as one of my goals. And yet, it's this, and, and I, I have this idea of a house. And what I'll often do for fun in my meditation is practice feeling what it feels like to own a Tesla and an amazingly mansion. And I just love the feeling. I'm like, I don't actually need the Tesla to enjoy the feeling of owning a Tesla. And it's this feeling I'm looking to get. I can get it at any time. I have access to it. And so now what I find myself doing is cultivating those things that really feed my soul. Like having this conversation with you nourishes my soul. I don't know why. It just does. I just feel this like, wow, we're talking about some really cool shit. And as long as I have enough money to not be struggling and not have that fear of how I'm going to survive, because survival kicks us into all kinds of neurochemical stuff that's not fun. But studies show once you're above that minimum threshold of survival, more money doesn't add happiness. You do need to get there, though, because you could be really unhappy when you're not having enough money for food. But outside of that, you've got to start looking at these other things. And that's that's why I like having these conversations and looking at where we're going in this world and how do we get there. And I like you're just asking that question, getting out of these kind of structures of culture, of what it means to be success, or what it means to be a failure. Like, there is no failure. Is there really? I mean, there's failure, and it's totally okay to fail. Okay, having said it that way, yes, and I would I would add and say, failure is inevitable. It's just one step, and it's your perspective. Your point is very well taken. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and I I, I think there's a separation between you know having. All right, let me let me say this, but between having like a very specific goal and failing at an action as opposed to adopting the idea of I am a failure because of the action, right? Like it, it, as a very rudimentary example, I want to go dunk a basketball, okay? Like I can't dunk. 
I could go and try and dunk and I would fail. I would miss the dunk. Oh, you're a failure. You're a shitty basketball player. There's plenty of basketball players who can't dunk. Are they failures? No. So it, it's almost like this arbitrary binary mechanism of success failure. But then we as humans tending to look at a track record of our actions and then saying, I am a success or failure. And I think, again, it's sort of the same mechanism of, of, of the separation from materialism defining us as beings or our beingness, whereas the perception of our actions being successful or failing, and then again, separating that from who we think we are. Because it's Beautiful. like, all right, so, so, so I tried something and it failed versus I failed. Like our language too, right? It failed versus I failed. Creating that label of I am. And the I am is so powerful. You know, Chris and I talk a lot about the I am principles, but just in general, just that I am whatever. And I think you, you made a really great distinction and you're, you're both making really good distinctions on what failure means. And I think it's important to just embrace this. There is no there. We're going somewhere. We're on this journey and we're going to have obstacles. And the whole point is to understand how we respond to these obstacles and pushing a rock may not be the right answer. It might, you might fail pushing the rock. The answer might be going around it, going over it. Yeah. You know, there's so much power in that separation, in that detachment from the outcome. And that's almost like where failure and success is defined from. And it's like, we can, we can do better and just acknowledge what comes from our work and detach from any outcome, whether it's a success or a failure, it's it's a creation of who we are. And it's a creation, to go back a, a little bit ago, to the intention that we set for how we choose to do what we do. And, you know, detachment's been, been really helpful for me. Um, you know, there's a process of detaching your energy. Uh, it's, you know, chords and all sorts of other people use words for all sorts of other things like that. And, you know, I notice as I go throughout the day and I start feeling overwhelmed, I start feeling not myself. I, I go through a process of detachment where I'll, I'll envision all of the thoughts, all of the people that I am connected to energetically. And I'll actually envision all of that energy coming back into my auric field, into my body and, and redefining where I'm at and what my intention is for the now. And being in that presence, you know, I feel like detachment's necessary to acknowledge how beautiful we are. Failure, success, it's all beautiful. And we as individuals are beautiful and what we create is beautiful. And what we're creating now is so profound. No one listens to it. Great, beautiful. This experience was, was really what I, my intention was for, is to connect with you guys. Jason, I, what I love about this conversation is is just getting to know you in a deeper way. And it brings me back to something I thought the very first time I met you, way back when, probably 10 years ago, is there's something about you. There's something about you that you project, and you talked about me projecting exuberance and enthusiasm. There's something about you that's very likable. And like, like it's, it's this, this there, I, I can't explain it. It's like, like this affinity feel that you have for life. life. I know just a few people that have it. I have a friend of mine back, back East that every time I'm around him, I feel good about myself. And I, and you have that quality. And I, I'm just wondering if a, you even know you have that. I'm sure you do on some level, but B, 
like, have you always been this way, or did you get to a point, and I know you've done some acting, and so, you know, maybe you were just an extrovert, or maybe you're an introvert that knows how to be a certain way around people. I'm just curious, like, how do you have this magnetic attraction? Like, what would you, how would you describe yourself in that way, and where do you think that comes from? Well, first of all, thank you for, for that observation, Chris. It's it's really meaningful to hear that you feel that in my presence. Um, it's This is a tough thing to answer um, because I, I, I don't have a, a, I don't have a, how do I say this? I don't have an awareness or an intent to leverage that energy, if that makes no. sense. It's not something that. No, of course not. And that's what makes it work. You, you, so yeah, it's a bit it's right. it's it, it's a bit difficult to answer. Um, yeah, authenticity is hard to explain, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 like, I'm, yeah, I I I mean I, I I can I can as a component of what you asked about extroversion introversion, um, which is probably related to it. Uh, I, I've always, even as a, a young kid, been very gregarious and upbeat and and and. Even at a really young age, my mom put me in theater shows even at like four years old, and and I just had a fearlessness on stage. I just would get up on a stage in front of a crowd of people and and had no fear. And um, I don't again. I, is that soul? Is that previous lives? I, it's hard to explain. I don't know. But um, I think but I that th that's attractive too. That that fearlessness. That like it's you know, as, as a human, as a man, as a human in this world, when we see that, when we feel that you're not trying, you're not putting on airs, you're not being anyone other than who you are. And it's like, Ooh, like, Oh, wow. I feel, I feel good around this guy. Like, let's talk about stuff. Let's you know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, thanks, maybe it's Chris. just me. Maybe we just have a thing, but I mean, yeah, keep going. No, I, I just, I really appreciate you sharing that because it, it, you know, Again, we we talk about the question previously about, I suppose, you know, at, at the end of my life, if I look back, if, if I know that through my just seemingly innocuous interactions, that I've brought some love and joyfulness and vibrance to the moments with you guys, you know, that to me, it's like, I'm not going to be thinking about at the end of my life, like, oh, yay, I had 100,000 followers on YouTube and I made all this money. And no, it's like... I think what you're describing is, is how we touch each other, literally, like the effect that we have. And, and it, it reminds me of, um, oh, one of my favorite Jim Carrey quotes. I love Jim Carrey, like growing up and doing acting and comedy, one of my favorites of all time. And Jim Carrey said, the effect that you have on other people is the most valuable currency there is. Oh, I've heard that. That's amazing. And I love it. And that's always stuck with me. It's always stuck with me. Right. It's like, yeah, the effect that we have on other people and not like I'm going to elicit effect. Like I'm going to light Chris. I'm going to light the Chris's up today. I'm going to come on the podcast and I'm going to light them up. Like, no, I'm just, I just want to connect. Whatever comes from that connection comes. I'm not going to come in like, I, I have to light these guys up. No, it, it's then, then, then it becomes manufactured. Then it becomes like, I'm trying to manipulate the moment. I think if we can stop trying to manipulate life and we can stop trying to manipulate moments, that's where real authenticity comes from, right? Because that word yeah. gets thrown around a lot right now. Oh, yeah. But I think if we tr stop trying to manipulate shit, then authenticity gets born from there.
I think I know what it is. I think you're not afraid to be vulnerable in a way that I think a lot of people are. I don't know why you're not afraid to be, but maybe because you've had that stage experience and you're just so genuine. You're so true. And I think we all have bullshit meters on some level. We're trained like it's like it's a tribal thing. It's what's real, what's false, what's true. And if you're if you're trying and we know those people that we like them, but they are putting on airs. We can tell we still like them, maybe. But we know that that difference. And maybe it's just because you have that confidence of knowing you can get up on stage and you've got nothing to prove to anyone. And so you're just always yourself. And I think there's something to be said for just having a, a positive attitude in life, seeing seeing life in a way where you're you're not looking to gossip. You don't like to talk bad about people. I don't either. It's just not where I get my I don't get my my juice from that. Um, it makes me feel awkward and, and icky. And these are the challenges of modern, being a man, being a woman, being being modern in this world, let going of all our undoing. Um, what are some of the other challenges that you think, besides what we've talked about, are there any challenges you think that, that we as, as men, women, humans, non-binaries are going through looking like, what do you think the biggest ones that, that you'd like to speak to are? I think that, if we continue to wake up to some of the fundamental roots of a lot of the suffering that's happening, I, I, I'm still working this out in my, my head and trying to understand why, you know, why is there so much violence? Why is there so much apathy? Why is there so much dominance? A lot of the things we've been talking about. And I think it's because that in human society at some point, and maybe this was even pre-capitalism. I, I I don't really know in terms of the historical record of, of human structured human society, but at some point, the illusion of scarcity and the illusion of not enoughness and and the story of I have to get mine before everyone else does because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of not having enough. I'm afraid of starving. I'm afraid of being cast out. I'm afraid of not having what I need. You know, it, it we we. I remember growing up in the 80s, right? And we had um, all of the commercials around saving the children and, and feeding children in, in Africa, right? And you can donate a dollar. It's like Sally Struthers. Like, you can donate one dollar and a dollar will feed a child for a week. But the more that I went down the, the rabbit hole of looking at resource distribution on the world, do we have enough food to feed everyone on the planet? Absolutely, we do. It's not about lack of food. It's not about lack of resources. It's the hoarding and the mismanagement of the distribution and the sharing of those resources. Is there enough money? Absolutely. Is there enough food? Yes, there is. Is there enough water, land, shelter? 100%. Mm -hmm. But through the illusion of scarcity, lack consciousness, fear, hoarding, we get violence, oppression, domination, and transnationalism of we need to destroy that person or that country or that group of people because we need to make sure we have enough. There wow. is enough. Truly, like on a very fundamental, I'm not trying to be woo-woo right now, like on a very fundamental level, we're just not sharing and distributing and getting the things to the people that need it most because I've got to have mine first. Wow. So to shatter these illusions and these bullshit stories that keep getting told, I think we have to absolutely crack those open and dissolve them and start being more generous, re-landscaping the systems of, of distribution and wealth sharing and resource sharing. Like that, that's something we can do as human beings. 
but are we willing to do it? That's the real question. Not are we going to, are we willing to? Wow. Yes. Wow. Yes. Fabulous. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I, you know, I got a question. Have either of you ever heard the, the statement, it's who you know? For sure. Especially here in LA, that gets, that gets tossed. Yeah. God almighty. That gets tossed around like, you know, farts on a vegan patio. <laughs> so, you know, I was, I was told this, this construct at a very young age, it never made sense to me. I can so relate to the farts on a vegan patio. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. No, thank you. That was beautiful. Yeah. It, it just never made sense to me. It's who, you know, because it's like, well, what about me? And now that I'm finally <laughs> acknowledging and, and filling that sense of self with who I am and figuring that out, it's like, no, it's, it's about who I am. It's about who, how I show up. And I struggle. I get into this, I get into this, this mind just hole where it's like, how can I fix, how can we fix the hoarding? How can we fix other people to stop hoarding? How can we fix these trillionaires that are trying to literally control everything on the planet from commercialization, from material world, from what's the next top stock that you can buy? <laughs> and, you know, it, it always comes back to who am I and how am I showing up? And, you know, you, you mentioned you stop manipulating moments and that's, that's, uh, that's the catalyst for real authenticity. Was there ever a time in your life that you were manipulating moments because you were trying to know the person that you were supposed to know to get you where you wanted to be? And when did that, when did that just stop for you? When did you sit with your intuition, your, your empathic energy and really sit with it and say, this is bullshit? I absolutely 100% have done it <laughs> many, many, many more times than I can count because there's a pressure of if I'm not hanging out in the room with the right people, right? The whole trope that we hear of, you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. Well, oh, if I want to be rich right. and famous and influential, then I sure as hell need to find some rich, famous, influential people because that shine is going to rum off on me. And then through association, I'll be valued because of the people I'm hanging out with. I think on an energetic level, the basic assumption of that premise is true, but we've bastardized it and we've mutated it to be like having cultivating transactional relationships where we don't actually really care about that other person. We just want to be around them for what they're going to do for us. And I'm living in a city where the industry in this town is based on that, right? So it's very tempting to want to engage in that type of behavior. So absolutely, I've engaged in that type of behavior. Because I was so focused on what I wanted to get versus how I felt about how I was behaving and conducting the framework of my relationships. Once I started to get more sensitive about how I felt after being in a transactional sort of interaction and then realizing, oh, I got what I wanted, but why do I feel so icky about it? Why do I feel so icky? I got the thing I wanted from this person. Oh, maybe it's because I manipulated them. Maybe it's because I put out false pretenses about who I was and what I could offer them so they would give me what I wanted. Why do I feel so disgusting about myself? Why do I feel gross? And once I started to pay more attention to the feeling 
mm. rather than I just need to get what I want at all costs. Going back to this old masculine paradigm of get what you want and it doesn't matter. The ends justify the means. Once I started to pay more attention to the means and not so focused on the ends, I was like, oh shit, this doesn't feel good. Transactional yeah. relationships and using people doesn't feel good. So I and don't you care. know it. it. And you know that you're using them. And and For guess sure. what? Even if you don't tell them that you're using them, or even if they don't, they know. We know when we're being used, even though we're not explicitly told we're being used. For sure. There's an energetic, there's something that goes on. And we know that. Yeah. And there's a price to pay. There is. And I go back to, there's a cosmic spiritual price to pay for treating people as ends, means to an end rather. There absolutely is. You know, and whether or not you pay it karmically in this lifetime or in another way, in my cosmology, I just couldn't treat people in that transactional way. I, I, and, and I see it, again, we go back to social media, I see it so much, and I just don't want to operate in relationship like that anymore. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel, for lack of, it doesn't feel an in integrity. That's the it's word not I want your to truth. use. No. Wow. Well, thank you, Jason. This has been an amazing podcast. Uh, we talked about everything from what it, failure and success and being authentic. We talked about bro culture. We talked about being a guest at the party of life, toxic masculinity, all kinds of stuff. Healthy masculinity. Healthy masculinity. <laughs> and really the focus of moving into what's this what are we doing as a species and how do we how do we move that so and i know you have a just talk about some of the things you're into i love your wellevator as the idea tell me about wellevator what is that i think of it as an elevator you're getting elevated into wellness obviously it's kind of right there but that's a great name Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Wellevator is a brand that my business partner, Whitney, and I, who's also my podcast host, uh, we created a couple of years ago because we realized that we were very much kind of square in the food and sustainability worlds. And to us, wellness was just a much larger umbrella of mental health, emotional wellness, relationships, integrity, spirituality. And so it was it was our desire to create a whole new vehicle to expand beyond food and sustainability into these other conversations, many of which are uncomfortable, which is why we titled our podcast, This Might Get Uncomfortable, because like we talked about here today, uh, Chris's, the faction of Chris, amazing Chris's, um, (laughs) a lot of these sort of conversations can be very uncomfortable because we talk about our shortcomings and the things we're working on and we're getting vulnerable and we're, we're bleeding out and we're saying, yeah, I still have a lot of shit to work on. So Wellevator and This Might Get Uncomfortable was just Whitney and my desire to crack that space open and have un, you know, no holds barred conversations about all this stuff. So th- this podcast we just did very much feels energetically like like the same conversations we have and and it's deep and it's nourishing and it's real and it's raw and it's it's no bullshit and Yes. That's the kind of conversations and interactions I want in my life. Yes. Even if they scare the shit out of me, that's the conversations I want in my life. So I just, I want to give you both props for creating the space and holding the energy to have that kind of conversation today as well. It's been beautiful. Yes. Thank you so much. Well, we appreciate you and 
and, and best luck. And if you, I'm going to put your, your links in the show notes. So get a hold of Jason, find out more about him. He's, he's exactly what you think he is. He's exactly here. This is the real deal. We love this guy. Thanks for coming on the show, Jason. I love you guys. Thank you so much. Much love, brother.